A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if you need a shot in the arm or if you need a little kick in the seat of the pants, but I'm here to provide both <laughs> as gently and as uh, as much as a friend would do it as possible. And we got some great stuff to talk about today. I don't know if you have noticed this as you've looked around. <clears throat> Excuse me. Have you noticed that uh, the fatigue of constantly wearing masks, constantly social distancing, you know, obeying all of the different uh, pandemic restrictions, it's starting to wear thin in a lot of places. And this is cause for celebration for a lot of people. I mean, you know, for myself included, it's like, wow, it's great to see people's faces. It's great to see people able to relax a little bit and not be quite so keyed up that everything I touch and every person I meet is likely to kill me. Now, just to put this in perspective, and I hope it doesn't come off as, yeah, I'm just making fun of these people. Ha <laughs> ha. You'll notice I haven't used the word sheeple. And it's because I don't think ridiculing people into considering a different point of view is that effective. It doesn't work. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel powerful. <laughs> I'm witty. Listen to me. But it doesn't really offer any light. And that's what we got to do. I mean, if we're, if we're serious about uh, making the kind of impact on the world that we should be making, we've got to be able to talk to people in such a way that they'll actually consider what we have to say. That means it's got to be spoken with love. It's got to be spoken with the idea that I'm not here to change your mind. I'm just here to have a conversation with you that hopefully offers some perspective that you may not have had before. What you do with that information, though, that's entirely up to you. I understand this is kind of a rare thing, especially in the age of social media where everybody's getting sick burns in on each other, you know, to prove their point. But I'm, I'm very grateful to see some people reaching that point where they're finally starting to question, hey, wait a minute, is this really necessary? Just to put it in perspective, you realize that uh, the, the people who contract COVID, we're talking about a quarter of 1% that are really in deadly danger from it. And especially when you take nursing home deaths out of it, that really puts it into perspective. 99.7% of people who contract the coronavirus, the the COVID-19 virus, are going to survive. Now, that doesn't minimize the fact that, yep, for some people, it's very dangerous and possibly even deadly. But look at how we've been willing to shut our world down. And this has worked very well for people who are opportunists and people who are power seekers. And I, I'm sorry if this sounds like, well, are you accusing people like Dr. Fauci of being evil? Look, I don't know his heart. I don't know what motivates him. But it's very clear to me, this man is not approaching things from a principled point of view. He, he doesn't consider the principles at stake. It's purely about power. And I think most people in those political positions, be they elected or simply appointed, That is the primary consideration. I don't care what's right or wrong. It's Machiavelli. Right and wrong? That doesn't really matter. What works? That's what counts. And keeping people scared 
about uh, you know this this supposedly you know massively deadly virus that's that's been a good way to stampede the herd if you will in in a direction of the choosing of those power seekers and opportunists see they understand crisis equals opportunity but now the panic is starting to subside uh-oh the opportunists are starting to lose their sway over the public what does that mean for you and me it means we better be very attentive and be paying close attention to whatever the next crisis is that's going to come along. I mean, there's any number of possibilities. You know, you look at the way that the, the news media, which, by the way, is not in, it's not there to inform you. It's there to tell you this is what those in power want you to believe. And, in fact, to insist you have to believe this or you're a bad person, possibly in need of being canceled. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But the bottom line is, this is the time to own that worldview. Your own worldview. And that's what this program and other programs like it are all about. I don't have all the answers. I won't pretend that I do. But there are some things I'm pretty, I feel pretty good about committing to the truth on on certain aspects of what's going on around us. And I'm quite certain that uh, in many ways we're being played and, and pushed into a totalitarian situation where, where totalitarians tell us not only what to do, but what to think, how to conduct ourselves, what words to use, and it's getting worse. Brandon Smith has always been, I think, a, a very astute observer of the passing scene. He warns globalists will need another crisis in America as their reset agenda fails. Now, I understand for some people, you know, you hear the Great Reset and immediately you're thinking tinfoil hat time. But isn't it interesting that the people who first used the term the Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, for instance, are part of this global elite that really believe, oh, you know, we've got to we've got to reshape everything the way we want it. And that's going to require putting uh, other considerations like, oh, I don't know, individual sovereignty, national sovereignty and so forth. They've got to get in the back seat or to the back of the bus, if you will, so that to this great reset agenda can can take place. Now, I'm not telling you I know for a fact this is real. I'm just saying the people who stand to gain the most in terms of control, in terms of wealth and in terms of power are the ones who are using this word or this this phrase, the great reset. So maybe we shouldn't dismiss it out of hand till we've taken a closer look. Brandon Smith says it might sound like U.S. exceptionalism to point this out. How dare I? But he says, even if the globalist reset is successful in every other nation on Earth, the globalists are still failures if they can't secure and subjugate the American people. He says, as I've noted many times in the past, even though most of the world has been sufficiently disarmed, and even though we're seeing resistance in multiple European nations against forced vaccination legislation and medical tyranny, it's unlikely they will have the ability to actually repel a full-on march into totalitarianism. Most of Asia, India, and Australia are already well under control. Africa's almost an afterthought, considering Africa's where many suspect vaccines are tested. He said America represents the only significant obstacle to the agenda. 
And Brandon Smith says conservative Americans in particular have been a thorn in the side of the globalists for generations. And it really comes down to a simple matter of mutual exclusion. You can't have an openly globalist society and conservative ideals at the same time in the same place. It's impossible. Why? Well, because conservatives believe in limited government. True free markets, meaning no government interference, individual liberty, the value of life, freedom of speech, private property rights, the right to self-defense, the right to self-determination, freedom of religion, and the non-aggression principle. We won't harm you unless you try to harm us. But none of these ideals can exist in a globalist world because globalism is, at its core, the pursuit of a fully centralized tyranny. Now, there are people on this planet that are not satisfied to merely live their lives, take care of their families, and make their mark peacefully. They crave power over all else. They desperately want control over you, over me, over everything, and will use any means at their disposal to get it. He says, I would compare it to a kind of drug addiction. Globalists are like crack addicts, rather. They can never get enough power. There's always something more to take. Now, they tell themselves and others that they are philanthropists or they know what is best for the rest of us. They believe themselves superior and therefore it is their destiny to dictate and micromanage society for the greater good of us all. But he says, really, when we witness their methods, it becomes clear they have no noble aspirations. They have no empathy or honor. They don't care about the average human being or the environment or the economy or society in general. They only care about themselves and their delusions of grandeur. He says these people are a cancer on the rest of civilization. And they seem to be particularly obsessed with deconstructing and sabotaging America in pursuit of their global reset. Real philanthropists would not have a problem if someone didn't want to accept their charity. I like that that's in quotation marks. But, he says, psychopaths cannot abide a group of people rejecting them and their ideology. You are not allowed to walk away from them. You're not allowed to do things your own way. You must be forced to comply because the agenda only works if everyone submits. Unfortunately, he says, for the globalists, the reset is not working out for them everywhere. In the U.S., the agenda is failing miserably compared to parts of Asia and parts of Europe. We're going to come back to this article by Brandon Smith in just a few moments. I picked this up off of lewrockwell.com earlier today. And I will include a link for you in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These will be the show notes for April 19th, 2021. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know I dived in kind of deep right into the whole global reset thing, the Great Reset, which is going to be scary for some people and probably sounds like conspiracy theory. I mean, I I don't blame you for being skeptical. I encourage it. But I'd like you to hear out what Brandon Smith has to say because I think there's a truth here that uh, crisis is opportunity for those who are seeking greater power over the people around them. And, you know, I don't think you have to be a conspiracy kook to, to recognize there are people in power who have gladly milked the COVID crisis 
to their advantage. I think Dr. Anthony Fauci is probably the best example of this. You know, that he had this very terse exchange last week in Congress with, I believe it was Congressman, uh, I want to say Jim Jordan. I hope I've got his name correct. But uh, when the congressman asked, you know, what are, what are we doing about, uh, you know, people's civil liberties? This, this is ridiculous to continue to restrict them and to hold this over their heads indefinitely. And, and Fauci's response was something along the lines of, we're not talking about liberties here. We're talking about a pandemic. As if that crisis trumps any consideration of civil liberties and limits on government power. I mean, you don't have to be a conspiracy theory chaser to recognize woo, unlimited government power is the source of incredible evil and harm throughout history. The worst things that ever happened were not done just by the common criminal and, you know, the common thug out there victimizing people. It's when it was done in an organized fashion by people in suits, carried out by people in uniforms and upheld by a public who believed, well, it's legal. It must be the right thing to do. The very worst things. Back to Brandon Smith's article, he says, as the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab is so fond of reminding us the COVID pandemic is the perfect opportunity to push forward the globalist plans for a total reset of human economy and society. To the globalists, the crisis is a panacea, a doorway to their version of a better world. They love the pandemic. They're not distressed by it. But the problem is, It's not doing enough damage or terrifying enough people. Consider the Event 201 Coronavirus Pandemic Simulation. This was held by the World Economic Forum and Bill Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation just two months before the real thing coincidentally happened in early 2020. Now, the pandemic war game was less about saving lives and more about how the elites plan to keep the public under control. The suppression of alternative media and censorship in social media was discussed at great length. Dissenting voices need to be silenced if the reset is going to prevail. And one factor within the Event 201 simulation that never played out, though, was the WEF projections on deaths. That war game suggested at least 65 million initial deaths due to the pandemic. Early projections of the death rate suggested 2 to 3% of the population or more. And the same projections were repeated by the UN's World Health Organization when the real pandemic was first revealed to the public. Instead, Brandon Smith says, COVID-19 has been a letdown for the globalists. With a tiny death rate of around 0.26% outside of nursing homes, meaning 99.7% of the population has nothing to worry about from COVID. Millions of Americans are becoming savvy to the situation and are refusing to comply with mandates over a virus that they see as a non-threat. Instead of backing off the reset scheme, though, the globalists are continuing to double down. Why? Well, Brandon Smith says because they have no other choice. They let the cat out of the bag and bloviating big mouths like Klaus Schwab told the world exactly what the plan is. If they retreat now, they might never get another chance to implement a world centralization plan, a massive grift which requires medical tyranny in order to prevent rebellion. You see, if the death rate had been dramatically higher than 0.26% and COVID represented a legitimate threat, well, then maybe a larger portion of the U.S. population would have been on board with longer-term restrictions and medical passports. Maybe not. The fact remains, 40% of the deaths have been in nursing homes among patients with pre-existing illnesses. And the death rate outside of these facilities is minimal. 
The mask mandates have proven completely ineffective, and states that have remained open and removed mask mandates have falling death and infection rates when compared to states that are enforcing lockdowns. So the fear narrative is falling apart. States across the U.S. are opening and refusing to implement useless mandates. In his home state of Montana, legislators and the governor are passing laws that forbid the enforcement of medical passports. Even major corporations are not allowed to demand vaccine passports from customers or employees. On top of that, 40 to 50 percent of the U.S. population in polls are refusing to comply with the vaccine rollout or medical passports. Why take a vaccine for for a virus that 99.7 percent of the the population is unaffected by anyway? In other other words, the jig is up. The globalists are going to need another crisis if they hope to enforce further lockdowns in the U.S. along with medical passports and disarmament. But he says, don't be surprised if there's more engineered chaos going into the summer months. But what will the next crisis look like? And he goes into several different possibilities. COVID mutations. You're hearing about this already. The mainstream media is pushing a nonstop narrative of COVID mutation hype. We hear about UK and Brazilian variants on a weekly basis. And the assertion's been that surely these variants will be more infectious and more deadly than the original virus. Now, there's still no proof whatsoever to confirm this. But the globalists care only about planting the idea in people's heads. They only care about reigniting the fear. Then you have the BLM riots. This is the next obvious tactic on the part of the establishment. Numerous state officials are openly supporting renewed riots across the country due to a recent police shooting in Minnesota. Now, the shooting itself was accidental. The suspect violently resisting arrest and leaping into his car, a female officer grabbed her pistol in a panic instead of her taser and fired. The point is, this event had nothing to do with racism, nothing to do with police brutality, but that's not stopping Marxist groups like BLM from taking advantage and making it all about white supremacy. But the real danger of unrest, however, will arrive at the closing of the Derek Chauvin trial. I don't care what the what the verdict is, by the way, this is just as an aside. That is what they are looking for, for an excuse to, to do the Rodney King riots from 1992 on a much, much grander scale. Brandon goes into a lot more detail on this in his, uh, in his essay. There's also Cyber Polygon. This is a war game being held by the World Economic Forum coming up in July, meant to simulate a major cyber attack on the global supply chain and the economic system. Now, there's been an endless discussion in the media this past year, building up fears of cyber attacks by Russia, China, Iran, even North Korea. And he says, in terms of glo- of supply chain threats, I'm not sure how a cyber attack could do much to disrupt global shipping unless we're talking about another blockage in the Suez Canal. But a successful attack on stock exchanges in places like Wall Street, now that could be devastating. And he says, I'd watch this event very carefully as it may be designed to precede a real cyber attack sometime this year. And then last but not least, you have global war tensions. The media and the Biden administration are very busy trying to create tensions with Russia over Ukraine. And there are new renewed tensions between Iran and Israel and continued destabilization by the West in Syria. And, of course, a rising confrontation with China over Taiwan. Now, he says war could be the goal. Or the goal could merely be economic conflict. After all, China's already been dumping dollars in U.S. treasuries this past year, and it wouldn't take much to cause damage to the world's dollar or to the dollar's world reserve status if China and Russia both diversified into a basket of currencies for global trade. So the bottom line is this. 
America is the primary target of the globalists because we are one of the only countries with the means and the numbers to stop them and the reset. And until they are removed from the equation, they'll continue to throw crisis after crisis at us in order to wear us down and to force us to accept totalitarianism. So he says, don't get too comfortable in the fact the pandemic agenda is failing here. Stay alert. Continue to organize with your communities. And I think that is extremely sound advice. I know, on the global level, you and I don't have a lot of say. We've not been invited to sit down at the table and explain, you know, the better way to those elites. But you can do a lot by organizing within your own home, within your family, within your neighborhood. That may turn out to be more important than we realized. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to our sponsors, including pure-light.com. I actually have put some of their uh, incredible LED light bulbs right above my kitchen dining table. And, you know, I feel good about this. Not only does it uh, eliminate uh, organisms, chemicals, you know, dangerous things, you know, germs that you wouldn't want around, but um, it, it also helps to eliminate food odors that might linger. You know, you cook something with garlic or with onions and uh, the whole house smells crazy, it smells like bacon, you know, after you've been cooking. These lights actually do the job of a $1,000 air purification machine and uh, they, they really work. It's been fascinating to give it a try. They cost a lot less than a thousand bucks too. I thought I'd point that out. You can find a link to them in the show notes at the com, as well as hslamo.com and our good friends at monticellocollege.org. Okay, you've heard people talk about listen to the science, follow the science. It's almost been kind of a mantra for those who have really been in favor of stronger enforcement of lockdown and, and pandemic restrictions. John Miltimore last Monday published a piece about a 75-year-old warning about people who say, listen to the science. And he makes a really good case that what they're really saying is follow our plan as opposed to, you know, be scientific in your thinking. Here's how it shakes out. Miltimore writes, on his first day as president, Joe Biden, flanked by a portrait of Ben Franklin, called on the federal government to advance environmental justice and to be guided by the best science. Now, he says, in many ways, uh, Biden's words came as no surprise. Throughout the 2020 campaign and after, Biden had often repeated phrases like, listen to the science, and I believe in science, presumably to contrast himself with his opponent. But Biden didn't stop there, however. He included the mantra in one of the first executive orders he signed, noting that it would be his administration's official policy to listen to the science. Now, that phrase seems harmless enough, but the scientific method is highly trusted and for good reason. It's been a boon to humanity and helped bring about many of the marvels of our modern world. Yet distinguished thinkers, new and old, have warned us to proceed with caution when confronted with pleas to listen to the science. This is a great quote from F.A. Hayek. And again, this is from John Miltimore's uh, Twitter account. Never will a man penetrate deeper into error 
than when he is continuing on a road which has led him to great success, and never can pride in the achievements of the natural sciences have been more justified than at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, economist Ludwig von Mises once observed the problem with using scientific claims to shape the modern world, and he suggested that in many cases people invoke science rather simply to tell other people what they must do. Mises wrote in his 1947 essay, Planned Chaos, the planners pretend that their plans are scientific and there cannot be disagreement with regard to them among well-intentioned and decent people. Now, most people agree science is a useful tool, and Mises was certainly one of them. But the problem Mises was getting at was that science can't actually tell us what we should do, which is the realm of subjective value judgments. Science can only tell us what is. Mises wrote, There is no such thing as a scientific ought. This echoed a famous argument by David Hume that uh, science is competent to establish what is. And the economist continued, Science can never dictate what ought to be and what ends people should aim at. It is a fact that men disagree in their value judgments. It is insolent to arrogate to oneself the right to overrule the plans of other people and to force them to submit to the plan of the planner. The planners pretend that their plans are scientific and that there cannot be disagreement with them with regard to them among well-intentioned and decent people. Again, this is von Mises. However, there is such there is no such thing as a scientific ought. Science is competent to establish what is. So as Mises correctly saw, John Miltimore writes, oftentimes when people say, follow the science, what they're really saying is follow our plan. When teen activist Greta Thunberg exhorts us to follow the science on climate change, she's not saying we should acknowledge that the planet is warming, that humans play a role in the Earth's climate. She's saying that people should adopt her plan and that of other climate activists, which includes transitioning off meat, giving up flying, something to be achieved through either shame or coercion, taxing fossil fuels and myriad other proposals. Billionaire climate activist Bill Gates explained in February why changes like moving meat, moving off of meat rather, should be done and how. Gates said in an interview with Technology Review, I do think all rich countries should move to 100% synthetic beef noting that emissions per pound of beef are not quite optimal. Gates said you can get used to the taste difference, and the claim, they're going to make, the claim is they're going to make it taste even better over time. Eventually, that green premium is modest enough that you can sort of change the behavior of people or use regulation to totally shift demand. End quote. So the proposals offered by Thunberg and Gates, who also said government should just listen to the scientists, may be good ones. They may be bad. But the key is to understand that their proposals entail value judgments, not just science. Similarly, in 2020, Miltimore says we repeatedly saw pleas for Americans to listen to the science. But the fundamental disagreement over COVID-19 was not over science, although there was certainly some, as evidenced by the CDC's flip-flops, modeling disasters, and widespread confusion over the lethality of COVID-19. He says nearly everyone understood from the the overarching science a new and deadly virus emerged from Asia, was spreading across the continents. But the primary disagreement arose over what actions should be taken to limit the spread, who should execute them, individuals or the state, and whether people should be coerced into action. Many of the questions Americans faced were complicated. If social distancing saves lives, should businesses be ordered closed? And if so, which ones? 
What should be done if people aren't social distancing in public? Should sick people be physically confined in their homes? What about healthy people? Assuming that face coverings limit the spread, should they be recommended or forced? What happens when people refuse? Now, John Miltimore says these are important questions, but again, they're ethical ones, not scientific ones. Sound science is merely a tool that can help us reach decisions on these matters. And the point is that Americans should heed Mises' warning and beware planners who say we must listen to them because their plans are scientific. Complex ethical problems demand solutions. And as journalist H.L. Mencken pointed out, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. Outsourcing our complex ethical problems to people with prestigious degrees may be simple, but it's also wrong. And John Miltimore says ethical questions are about what we ought to do. And as Mises saw, there is no ought in science. That's pretty good stuff. By the way, I want to share a little bit of good news with you as well. Um, I don't know if you have, have caught on to how some of the, um, some of the, the schools are beginning to, to lift their, uh, their restrictions, their face mask restrictions. I'm just going to, I'm just going to share a couple quick ones here. Um, I've got, I've got some friends who uh, have paid very close attention in my home state of Utah, and I think have actually had a, had very good impact. Kane County School District was the very first to show parental rights and local control were worth protecting. That's what my friend Brad, friend Brad Green shared on his Facebook page. And, and what that means is parents can opt their children out of wearing a mask at school, and they do not have to have some kind of signed medical release. San Juan School District has followed suit. Now, Brad lives in the Iron County School District, and he's saying the Iron County School District needs to demonstrate they care about these principles, too. So he says, push the school board members to include an action item on their agenda to clarify the district policy regarding the parental exemption for mental health reasons. Here's the kicker, though, and I'm going to turn to my friend who's an attorney, Jeremy Snow, who uh, he says, I no longer have children that attend the Iron County School District, but I do have some that do. Through them, he says, I did some research into Utah State Public Health Order 2021-2 that governs mask wearing at school. And that order states a child with a medical condition, mental health condition, or intellectual or developmental disability that prevents them from wearing a face mask is exempt from the mask mandate at school. The order goes on in Section 4 to list various medical professionals who the school can require to provide proof of medical exemption. But that section doesn't list a single mental health professional who could give proof of a qualifying mental health condition. And, and Jeremy asks, it was one of two things, either an unintentional oversight, something that can happen in the heat of lawmaking, or the state intentionally left off mental health treatment providers from that list because they really didn't want to allow anyone to be able to claim a mental health condition exemption. To believe the latter, he says, is to believe the state would prefer that young children, impressionable children, knowingly suffer in their mental health condition rather than allow a mask exemption for them. Pretty crazy stuff. And if you go to a mental, I'm sorry, if you take your kid to a medical doctor and say, can I get a mental health exemption for my child? The doctor, I believe, is bound by law to tell you, I am not a mental health professional. You know, I'm a medical professional, so I will have to refer you to a mental health professional, which again, conveniently is not listed in this uh, state order. I don't know. I've become a little more suspicious over the last year and a few months. 
And the thought that it could be accidental, okay, I, I can see it's a possibility. I'm not so sure that it was. That's the suspicious part of me coming out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You've stuck it out this far. Thank you for indulging in some wrong think with me today. My goal here is not to make you angry or make you afraid. I don't want you going out there feeling like, you know, I have pointed out the enemy and told you go and destroy or, you know, shout them down. I do want to tackle some difficult subjects and I want to do it in such a way that you realize, hey, my influence can be exerted at uh, maybe at lower levels than the national or even the state level, but it still matters. And, and I'm going to touch on a subject here that, that is, it's uncomfortable for me. But I think it needs to be talked about, and that is where America's woke cancel culture is leading us. Because there's some really crazy stuff going on right now to where, um, I, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this, but have you noticed how the uh, the various, the, the various um, corporations have become intensely woke? I mean to the point where everything they do is all about bending the people to the will of the political class. It's a very interesting partnership that has emerged. There's a book out there. I'm going to talk about this in the, in the other hour of my show, uh, in which Steve Sukup, the author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, talks about how progressivism as a cultural force has come about, why corporations are increasingly taking sides. I mean, it used to be just about, hey, shut up and make your product, sell something that makes our lives better, and that's what we will happily embrace. But have you noticed the corporations, whether it's from Major League Baseball right on down to Coca-Cola, they have taken a very serious stand. And it seems like they, they have, have fallen prey to an attitude in which uh, they're, they're, turning, they're becoming political combatants trying to make the world a better place. And this getting involved in politics is a really, really scary thing. There's a great quote from this article that uh, that John Miltimore shares, um, and this is a review of the book, again by by uh, oh, what's his name Sukup, the dictatorship of woke capital by Steve Sukup. Let me see if I can find this quote for you. I thought this was this was just dead on the money. Rather than staying neutral in the culture wars, major companies have hitched their brands to one side of a content- contentious political divide. Why would they do that? Why would they throw in like this? And here's the deal. Sukup says this battle, what you see playing out in front of us, the, the tension playing out before us, is between those who believe politics is and should be the overriding force in all human interactions and those who believe that politics is just part of the human experience, but a part that's best kept as narrow and limited as possible. You can probably guess which camp I fall into. So none of this has been so difficult so far, right? Okay, well, let's take the plunge. This is an article from Robert Bridge. I'll have this linked in the show notes today. As America confronts its anti-white woke moment, is cancel culture just a euphemism for genocide? 
Now, that's not a word you use lightly. But when you consider the Marxist roots of what is taking place in cancel culture, let's just say Marxism has a whole lot more blood on its hands historically than any other political ideology that I can think of. Yes, even the Nazis were pikers compared to the Marxists. Tens of millions of people systematically murdered for not getting on board. So here's what uh, Robert Bridge has to say. He says, although change is sometimes good, this isn't one of those times. Overnight, the U.S. has changed into something alien, something sick. Wokeness has arrived with a vengeance, and it doesn't bode well for the nation's future. He says, in the beginning, it seemed very reasonable to dismiss cancel culture as a bad joke, symptomatic of Trump derangement syndrome, a very real clinical condition known for unhinging even the brightest minds. But he said the joke was told years ago, and no one's laughing anymore. The first sign that something sinister had infected the left side of the American cranium occurred in the unlikeliest of places, the college campus. The manicured citadel of free thought and expression where the very idea of censorship is wholly repugnant. But that was yesterday. Today, university students consider it their solemn duty to silence any individual or individuals who don't share their liberal worldview. Peak insanity occurred in February 2017 when violent protesters hurled rocks and torched buildings at the University of California, Berkeley, to prevent conservative speakers from addressing a group of students. And from there, it was off to the insanity races. Robert Bridge says, In the wake of this collegiate brain rot, said to have taken root during World War II with the arrival of cultural Marxists from Germany to America's unsuspecting shores, Statues in the town square are being toppled, offensive corporate logos removed, and the historical works of American art and literature forever shelved, even being so bold as to suggest that 2 plus 2 equals 4 risks turning a person into a social pariah. Think about that. If someone had suggested five years ago that, you know, math is going to be considered racist at some point, we would all have laughed. Not so many people laughing now. Robert Bridge says, Meanwhile, the honorable desire for building a meritocracy, which according to the Inquisition, stinks to high heaven of white supremacy and privilege, has been been replaced by a politically correct mediocrity. In other words, America is on the express lane to idiocracy, population 330 million. And this cult-like craze where the bigots are engaged in a strange competition to find new things to rage about is no longer a campus activity. With the introduction of critical race theory, another damaged product of the academic brain that teaches that all white people are inherently racist, the corporate world has gone full-blown woke to the point where Coca-Cola, when it's not pushing alternative sexual lifestyles on children, is instructing its workforce to be less white. Meanwhile, United Airlines recently announced it will be culling white male pilots in the cockpit in favor of minority groups. Because I guess enough planes are not crashing. Now, that's not to suggest the flying skills of minorities are somehow inferior to those of white males, but rather that nothing ever good comes when it's forced from above. And while this Inquisition is obsessed with purging American society of any hint of racism or favoritism toward whites, it never pauses to consider that these final solutions are fomenting a new sort of racism, this time against the white population. And although it may fly in the face of the new woke math, two wrongs will never make a right. In a timely and thoughtful article on the subject, conservative commentator Victor Davis Hanson forwarded a question that must be on a lot of minds these days. Can the Great Awakening succeed? 
Perhaps even more to the point, what happens if it does? Examining the situation with Orwell's animal farm in mind, Hansen suggests that wokeism takes it on faith that the white population in these post-George Floyd times will quietly agree with the position that some discrimination is good and different from other discrimination. In other words, although most people agreed that the former racism against blacks was wrong, the sort of racism now targeting white people in the name of social justice and the common good is an entirely different animal, and one that even white people will agree is acceptable. Under such improbable circumstances, Hansen continues, it will seem natural to toss around with reckless abandon terms like whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, and white terrorists about all 230 million American whites in a way that it would be terribly wrong to talk pejoratively and collectively in terms about any other group. Hansen asks if whites in the United States will happily condone blatant discrimination where, just as two examples, criminal suspects shall not be identified by race unless they are white. While at the same time, America's most elite colleges can justify restricting white admissions to around 30 to 40 percent of their incoming classes. Now, Hansen's of the opinion they will not, but others offers no hint as to what that refusal may entail, aside from some self-inflicted damage. And here's where it may be forgotten that while or that white liberals were themselves responsible for the woke movement in the first place. So I don't know. This, this is the, the scary part. Uh, Hansen says the liberal white elite class engineered a system of woke racialism they assumed rested on some sort of unspoken 70% white who would absorb the brunt of the anti-white inquisition. The woke white elite did not sign up for a 30 to 40% white allotment that cuts into their white woke, the good and morally superior whites. So from this perspective, white elites pushed their woke agenda for self-gain while never suspecting that one day, much like Dr. Frankenstein, their hideous creation would return to devour them. So when, when you subject an entire race of people to the most despicable kind of stereotypes, you are setting the stage for some very ugly things, including the fact that maybe you haven't learned from the lessons of history. The comparisons that, like Gina Carano made to the way that uh, the Jews were treated as the Weimar Republic became the Third Reich, I know it angers some people. I think it angers them because there's an element of truth there they don't want others to consider. Robert Bridge says it's time to stop the race baiting and find the real solution of this racial discontentment before the U.S. finds itself with far worse problems to consider than the hidden racism of a Dr. Seuss book or the name of a pancake batter. He says the world is watching America. Get it together. This is The Brian Hyde Show.